Our societies today are shaped by short-termism. Social media feeds, the latest political headlines or the latest fashion trends. Like it's all about now. Meanwhile, the planet is warming and inequality rises. Existential catastrophes, human extinction. If short-termism got us into this mess, can long-termism get us out of it? Organizations, institutions and people often focus on the short term, but not considering the long term can cause major problems when it comes to global issues like climate change, poverty, deforestation, religious conflicts and migration. For these major issues we must develop long term strategies. In this series, scientists, stakeholders talk about new views on big issues based on long termism. Long-termism? Long-termism. Long-termism. What is long-termism? Every episode we ask the same question to see how different people view this term. Martijn Klop is a student of the Utrecht University and co-founder of the student group Effective Altruism. Martijn, great to have you on the show. Well, I'll ask you the same question as I ask everybody in the f- who's first on the show. What is long-termism according to you? So long-termism is the following philosophical argument that the lives of future people matter. Uh, There could be an enormous amount of them and we can do things to harm or benefit them. And hence the lives of future people should be a or even the key moral priority of our lifetime. This thinking isn't, by the way, necessarily new, but it is in its modern form originating from the effective alters and movements. And this is a research field and community that's concerned with the question, how can I do the most good? So contrary to important questions like how can I be a good person or what wrongdoing should I avoid, they realize that there's no fundamental limits to how far your altruistic efforts can reach. Okay. So do the most good. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's why effective altruists are also all about opportunity costs. So for example, if you donate to a charity that saves a life for 100,000 euros, that means you haven't donated to a charity that potentially could have saved a life for 5,000 euros. This doesn't make either donation kind of good or bad. But it is true, and you might want to consider it. Um, Also, a core value of effective altruism is impartiality. So when trying to do the most good, like we don't value people less just because they are different from us or live far from us in space. Um, So since issues faced by people in the global south are much more cheaper than to solve and much more neglected, uh, our philanthropic efforts should go to focusing on them, Um, which is why I give, for example, 10% of my income to effective charities that combat malaria. Like, and what how if I do turn- you choose then? Because doing good is a very broad perspective and doing the most good, I mean, is it better to donate to malaria than to donate do, to uh, conquering AIDS? Yeah, so that's a very good question. And that's kind of why we try and look at the impacts of what our uh, donations achieve or what our efforts achieve, our careers. And these are really difficult questions, which I don't want to understate. And especially, and that's I guess why we're here, like if we start to turn our attention to Uh, those who live very far from us in time. For example, do future generations matter less just because they are in the future and should we hence like not care about solving their issues? Yeah, I guess tuning into the podcast today, like one type of moral wrongdoing could be uh, the injustice of handing over a less livable planet to future generations to come. I mean, that's clearly bad, but like how do we evaluate our actions that influence how many people will live in the future? And mm. so that's where existential threat comes in. And that's actually what, in the end, a lot of effective altruists prioritize quite highly. Uh, since like humanity and our technical capabilities are rapidly evolving and we don't really seem to take a lot of ownership over where things are heading, if we aren't getting wiser at the same pace as our capabilities are getting stronger, we might be causing irreversible damage to our future potential, which might be the key moral priority of our lifetime, as long-termism says. Like extreme climate change scenarios could cause such risks, but there might be even more obscure issues that can do much more irreversible damage, such as nuclear grid power conflicts or the emergence of uh, biological weapons or transformative artificial intelligence or something else entirely that we're completely overlooking because like we're moving at such a fast pace. Yeah, like a big asteroid that's coming towards us. Well, Maybe it's the best to to invest in making sure that that big asteroid that will hit us in 100,000 years well, research that will just deflect can show it just a bit. Researchers can show that this risk, this natural like existential risk is actually quite small and probably we should focus very much more on the existential risk that comes from our really advanced technological capabilities that we are really rapidly evolving and yeah, no one seems to really be on the point of trying to deflect this towards a certain future that we want. And yeah, taking long-termism serious could mean you should really rethink your priorities. Um, 
And if you really take it to heart, I think the chance that you continue doing what you're doing right now is very small. You really have to seriously think about these questions. Um, because, yeah, getting an estimate of what are the likely chances that will cause existential threats in the next century is actually kind of a really difficult question. Um, because, yeah, you might intrinsically, for example, worry about asteroids, but perhaps there are like much more dangerous things that much less people have on their radar that we should focus on. Um, and I think these are really difficult questions. And if we really take this serious, we should like answer two questions. And I guess I'll end then. Um, so how do we make sure that humanity survives the coming centuries? Um, if we want this chance to be like 50%, this might not be very difficult, but say we want it to be like 99.9%, then we will have to really put our brightest minds and a ton of resources on this question. And especially if we think about how do we want humanity to come out of these centuries? Like if we think it's just a matter of living the way we do now, but kind of within planetary boundaries, that's already hard enough. But our current pace of growth is so astounding, like the world economy doubles every 30 years. So in this light, all future scenarios are kind of wild and a continuation of this growth and exploration and stagnation or decrease or even a collapse. Like at some point you have to realize that we are in an accelerating plane and no one's at the wheel and no one even knows how to fly this thing. So yeah, asking these questions are kind of important and overwhelming. So <laughs> good luck for the rest of the podcast <laughs> guests. Um, but yeah, they can only make us, make us wiser as a species if we like critically engaged with these questions. Um, all right. I would tell you all to do this, so please take a look at also the forum, the effect of altruism.org slash handbook. Uh, you see a lot ton of ignore, more information and valuable discussions like we're going to have today. Super. Thank you, Martijn, for this uh, great uh, kickoff of the show. Cash is trash? Not anymore. This six-month investment is considered a short-term investment. And everybody knows that if you're going to invest, you should consider that money to be put away for at least four or five years. This big misconception of what being a long-term investor actually means. The economy wasn't created to make money. The economy was created to add value to the collective. Environmental, social and corporate governance, or ESG. These are the trendiest words in finance. Impact investors are looking for intentional outcome orientation with respect to the investments they choose to make. What if additional profit also meant common good advanced, like more housing built or more jobs created or more local food grown? Although investors tend to look at the short term, they are forced to contribute to global problems that require a long-term view. Crises such as climate change, biodiversity loss and growing inequality lead to new risks, regulations and pressure from the public opinion. However, simply investing more will not be sufficient. How can investments positively impact long-term global challenges? What changes are needed to let investments work towards sustainability instead of against it? Our first guest is Roberta Benedetti del Rio. She is a sustainability-focused investor. Roberta, if you look at the way that we currently invest, what's wrong with that in terms of sustainability and fairness? Hi, thank you for having me. Um, yeah, so I'm an investor who's always been focused on sustainability, and that means investing, trying to improve the conditions of people and for the planet as well, alongside generating um, financial returns. Mm -hmm. Sustainable investing is intrinsically related with the concept of long-termism. If we look at the definition of uh, sustainable development, as defined in the UN report, Our Common Future from 1987, um, sustainable development means development that meets the needs of present generation without compromising the ability of future generations uh, to meet their own needs. So that intrinsically looks at long-term in sense of generation. So mm. um, we, we can think of that as really long-term. Uh, that's uh, something that is not necessarily embedded in current investment practices. Investors tend to have shorter time frame that they look at and, uh, and annual deliverables, annual impact and returns goals that they need to, to deliver. And so this requires change in, in practices for sure. Lately, environmental, social and governance principles are definitely coming much more into the discourse of investing and, uh, and also in practices. And there's, first of all, it's becoming accepted as a principle uh, that one can consider environmental and social goals alongside uh, financial returns um, as, as a legitimate objective of investing. 
and practices are starting to develop to measure that and to uh, take that into account uh, in different ways. However, that doesn't necessarily always lead to a deep change in practices and in what investors are actually doing with their money. Why not? Well, there's many challenges um, around that. I would divide them in three buckets. Um, the first one is structural. Investment funds are uh, structured with a set time frame. So you have an investment period and then a harvesting period, for example, uh, and that has a... That word alone, huh? <laughs> indeed. Um, <laughs> that creates a time pressure on uh, with a, sort of a deadline on when investors need to get their money back or, or generate yeah. their return. There's incentives um, issues as well. Obviously, there's uh, performance fees and, and bonuses that are paid annually. And yeah, it's a, just it's it's, it's the, the way that people are valued that are doing the work and they are valued rewarded. for the rewarded mm -hmm. for the short term. Exactly. And then there's just the practicalities of investing and the and the, the time value of money. When you look at a company and you value its worth, then you look at its future cash flows in a way that discounts those further out in the long term much more compared to the ones that are closer. And that uh, intrinsically leads you to valuing the next three to five years max, much more than what happens in 10, 15, 20 years. Hmm. Um, I think there's also probably like innate humane um, attitude of uh, inability to being able to forecast uh, and or envision a future much uh, further away. Yeah. Um, I mean, a lot of people have even have problems about thinking about their pensions, let alone investing for the longer term than their own pension. Indeed, indeed. So it's also something that's just in us humans that we have to battle. Absolutely. At the same time, I think long term investors like indeed pension funds who are asset owners that know they need to manage money for 20, 30, 50 years, they are really interested in this and are really starting to think about how can we do things differently? How can we change structures maybe or, or incentives in a way that aligns investors to, to the longer term? Yeah. The other the other issue is that sustainability requires not only looking at certain environmental and social outcomes, but actually requires looking at system change, just because of how we know that the current challenges of uh, climate change, social tensions, inequality, biodiversity loss—they're so interrelated. Um, so even the most reputable um, reports, scientific reports out there, like the IPCC, they actually call for system change and. This word is starting to come into investors' discourse and practices. However, one thing is trying to aim for that, and another thing is knowing how to do that, uh, and that's very complicated. This is one of the areas we're exploring uh, in the Deep Transitions project, and uh, we've published an investment philosophy that looks at that, and it put together 12 investment principles on how one can think about investing in a way that's transformative, uh, really aiming for deep system change as opposed to a specific short-term impact or outcome. Mm. Um, having said that, I think there's still a lot of work to be done in terms of uh, understanding how to put that in practice and uh, translating that into investment tools and investment practices. Yeah, we have to work really fast together because we are working on the long term. That's really it's a strange uh, paradigm that we, that we're in. We are we are very much in a hurry to change things, but we know we have to change them for the very long term. Indeed. But if we don't start now today, then we really have a big problem, even in the short term. Indeed, that's a great uh, tension there. Um, investors want to see reactions and, and and results now, but indeed, one of our principles is you have to think of uh, change in in decades. Uh, really for the long term. So how to balance that out and how to measure progress in the short term to show that even if things will take a while, they're actually heading in the right direction. That's one of the challenges that we'll yeah. have to work towards. And what is the question you want to ask to our uh, three guests of today? <laughs> I really want to ask, how do you think that private investors can most effectively invest in long-term system change? Oh, okay. Well, let's ask them. In this episode of Long Termism, three scientists will give their view on this question. Johan Schott, Professor Global History and Sustainability Transitions. Diana Valesco, Anthropologist, System Engineer and currently Research Fellow at Ingenio. And Friedemann Polzin, he is an Associate Professor at the Utrecht University School of Economics. 
And we'll, uh, well, I'll, I'll just uh, tell you what our structure is in this part of the show. We have 10 minutes, which is, of course, far too short to talk about such complicated and very important uh, topics. But we have 10 minutes for each academic to talk about the issue at hand. The two other academics, they will ask questions to learn from their colleague. They all have a different field of expertise. That's the fun thing about it. All right, Friedemann, let's start with you. You heard the question of um, Roberta. How can private investors most effectively invest in long-term system change? For private investors, systems are a very complicated thing to assess. So usually uh, what you see what they do is they have a particular field of expertise and that's what they basically are doing, right? So they uh, uh, have a background in clean energy, so they try to invest in clean energy. That is, uh, that is okay, what so you they, So they invest in the thing that they are comfortable uh, comfortable with, with. Yes. yeah yeah okay so that is uh, that is one one of the, uh, the the premises so that is actually what you would expect all of the investors are doing but unfortunately this is uh, when you look at most part of the of the financial sector this is unfortunately not happening so you also see for example the the rise of passive investing basically investing what is already there at the at the stock market and that is what i i would call financing the status quo Right, so then you would basically assume that the world continues on the path that we are on now, and we basically had that in the introduction. But also, what Roberta said, then we would be headed for uh, for disaster. So we would need a more active approach, more active decision making for investors to effect uh, to effectively invest in in, in long term uh, systemic change. Okay, so passive investing is like uh, I'll just uh, take the uh, S and P five hundred and I'll just exactly. invest in that and it will rise and now my pension is guaranteed. Exactly. So, so a lot of the money, if you look at the financial market as a whole, is invested like this, and that basically doesn't lead us to any system change because we basically continue on uh, on on the path and they don't account for any structural breaks that we eventually would need so we would need a different type of energy system food system uh, mobility system uh, so uh, what we what we would need is is a lot more also expertise within particular types of investors and actually make a judgment call and saying okay Considering the risks that we are facing, but uh, and, but also the changes that we would need to make in particular types of systems, we would need to anticipate, okay, there will be an energy system that is powered by 100% renewable energy and uh, that it takes probably, given the speed of, of deployment, takes 20 years. So I would le- basically adjust my portfolio and, and, and focus, on, focus on having a mm. kind of appropriate amount of renewable energy in there. So that would basically mean cutting back on maximizing short-term profits. That's basically, and then Roberta also said that uh, in her statement, that is still driving kind of quarterly results, reporting, etc. So that is driving basically short-term, uh, short-term decision-making. And if you for yeah, if you forego some of the, of the, the, the short-term wins that you can actually make, just look at last year, like record profits of the the big uh, oil companies. Then you would be able to to see kind of okay, this is kind of the end point, the future stage, and what is my role as an investor in there? So how would my portfolio need to look like in order to be kind of compliant with uh, that future state of energy mobility system, mm. etc. All right. Well, thanks for now. Your colleagues will have some questions, I can imagine. Uh, let's start with uh, Diana, Diana Velasco. What what triggers your curiosity when when you're listening to uh, Friedemann? What do you want to know from him? Was just, I was just thinking about the role of regulation in all of this uh, state of play, because obviously companies try to maximize their profit, but then what's the role of the state in all of this? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, there's actually not a law that companies have to maximize their profits. If you, for example, listen to Larry Fink uh, of BlackRock, he always says, yeah, we have this fiduciary duty, but what does it actually mean? So it does mean basically caring for the people that are retiring soon, basically, right? So that's the money that uh, that he manages or his company manages uh, in a way. Uh, but there's also many pension beneficiaries that will retire, like me, uh, maybe in 40 years, all right? Uh, my daughter will maybe retire in 60 years. Uh, so in that sense, <laughs> this is also not an entirely an argument that I don't buy. On the other hand, a regulation, um, and that is part, part of the problem, I agree with that. So for example, if you look at what 
also what we would call long-term, actually long-term oriented in investors like pension funds that manage our, uh, our pension contributions, and what kind of regulation they need to follow, they would always uh, need to invest in something that we as, as economists or financial economists call uh, liquid investments so that they would, could sell at any point in time. But that is actually not realistic because no one is retiring. We are not retiring all at the same time and not all in the all in the, in the next five years, right? So enabling them to also invest more long term in illiquid asset like infrastructure, uh, wind parks, for example, something that you can't readily sell like the next day, what you could otherwise do with stocks uh, that you hold. Then we would uh, unlock a lot of the trillions actually that those pension funds uh, manage uh, for investing in infrastructure that we would need in 50 years and that is basically what i would also consider long term okay, okay. Yeah. yeah clear clear all right what i was thinking about um friedman these pension funds they still have a lot of um uh, a lot of investments that are easily liquidized but you can you know when you're uh, when when the people that they are investing the money for when they will be going with the on their pension so why why is that why do they still do that yeah that that is basically part of their uh, of their mandate um, that is how fin financial markets are structured right so in the uh, in, in the way sounds uh, like we need a system change we need a system change in that sense. It, this is a relatively, uh, relatively easy fix. Uh, so they have kind of mandates and they need to have a certain percentage of their portfolio invested in this liquid. So oh, they could, need. Oh, okay. Yeah, that is, they, they're required by law to do that. Also, basically, want to, to judge kind of their performance on which, on what kind of track they are, basically saying, okay, and then you have it in the news. Well, we would need to cut down or we can basically expand on the pension depending on the market, how the markets are, 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 are doing. But this is basically not related per se to the state in which the economy or, or, or the system as a whole uh, will be when some of the people actually retired. And this is kind of the mismatch uh, that we would, need to, we would need to address. But that's a relatively easy fix All right. uh, in the regulation. We found an easy fix. That's great. Johan, what, uh, what are you curious about? What's your question to Friedemann? Um, I have two questions, but let me first start with also regulation, because we can talk about the negative role of regulation, constraining actions, uh, but perhaps there's also a positive role, because nowadays pension funds are asked to align their portfolio with, uh, for example, the Paris Agreement, and they need to assess uh, this alignment and then make sure their portfolio, you know, leads to uh, and complies with this agreement. Can that have a positive role in your view? Because this is in a way about risk management. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, we start seeing that, uh, at least in the industry, that pension funds, but also banks, uh, we've recently sent a comment on that by the Sustainable Finance Lab on these kind of decommunization commitments. And then, but then we would need someone to check basically whether they're on track and there would need to be kind of consequences if that is not the case. Yeah. For them, it's very difficult to basically take their portfolio and look at whether this is really Paris compliant because there's many moving parts. And if you, if you look at those scenarios that they usually take, that's on the macro level and breaking that down to kind of the portfolio that they have, they have difficulties doing that. So what you usually see is um, that they have kind of relative targets and reducing uh, kind of the emissions uh, intensity uh, by a percentage of X every year, but not all of them. And that's also something that we advocate for uh, in the in the trade commerce. So here in the in the Dutch Parliament, uh, that we would need to move to absolute targets, right? Absolute reductions, uh, and that would actually be something that is uh, that is Paris compliant. All right, Johan, you said you had another question and that will be the final question also. Well, this is about the fiduciary duty because uh, pension funds, certainly in the US, are always mentioning this as the barrier because they are not allowed to look at impact. In fact, they need to look at wealth creation and they can even end up in court if they do. My sense of fiduciary duty is, of course, that the future will have many shocks that will be destructive for wealth. So you can also turn it around and say, if you don't take into account impact, then you destruct wealth. Do you think this will be held up in court? Easy question to 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 to, to complete this into conversation. <laughs> I think the the link that you that you're mentioning is uh, is there. So the fiduciary duty basically rests on the assumption that 
in the stock prices of companies, basically all the stakeholders, also the future generations are, are being incorporated and that is monetized. But that is definitely not the case, right? So we see that there's many externalities that are not priced in. Mm. Humans, investors are bound to be irrational, so we can't take anticipate all the shocks that you are just mentioning. So I, what I think uh, they would need to look at is to make their portfolio resilient, right? So we also don't know exactly how the future energy system look like or the f uh, future mobility system. So at some point, there will be losses. Uh, the question is, how good are you able to deal with those? Mm -hmm. And I think this is, this is an easier sell than saying, okay, well, we care about impact. But we don't know how the how the future would look like, but we try to make our portfolio kind of climb-proof, resilient, whatever you want to call it. All right, Friedman, thank you very much. We're going to switch to, uh, to our next um, scientist. Johan Schot. Johan, I'll get back to the question because that always helps, of course. How can private investors most effect effectively invest in long-term system change? What's your take on that? Okay, well, we first have to think about what we mean by long-term system change. And uh, for me, it's very important to introduce the distinction between system optimization and system change. Because over the last two centuries, as part of the Industrial Revolution, we have built a set of systems for energy provision, for mobility provision, for food provision, that are inherently wrong because they inherently produce the energy system is very simple it's based on fossil fuels there's no way we can address the climate crisis without completely change the system it's the same for the food system because it's inherently producing too many problems for biodiversity but also for the climate and in fact for inequality so we need to change these systems in a very fundamental way And a lot of things that investors are doing are what is what we would call system optimization. For example, the electrical vehicle has been heralded as a kind of system change. Yeah, but I it's have still, one. And you're now telling me that I'm doing the wrong thing. I, well, it's I, still, I'm, if we replace all the current gasoline vehicles with electrical vehicles, it creates many new problems also in terms of all the minerals and, 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 and that we need to get from somewhere, uh, material use, So it's not a solution. It's perhaps part of a solution, but you need to add other things. So investors need to start thinking about this difference between system change and system optimization and how to measure that. So in, in because the electrical vehicle is a, is a great example because everybody can imagine yeah. something with that. What would be the systems change? Okay, so if you would integrate the electrical vehicle into a system of mobility provision, So it means you would not own your own electrical vehicle. You would have a mobility provider, which is a complete new side type of function in society. So you would write to your email, your mobility or app, whatever uh, platform you use and say, I, tomorrow I go from A to B and, and the provider will arrange your travel completely. Mm. Uh, so there will be electrical vehicles, but owned by a mobility provider who is organizing the mobility Not only car, but also other types of mobility. Uh, for example, nowadays it's uh, Schiphol. If you arrive at Schiphol, then you can fly to Paris. But you can also go by train. But it's impossible to buy one ticket, combined ticket of train and flying. Hmm. And you could even go a step further. You could say to Schiphol, you could only sell that. It's impossible to fly because it's ridiculous to, to fly to Paris. So these type of combinations, so we need a, a new type of company or a provision that will integrate uh, all the mobility means. Yeah. And we have to invest in that kind of change. Yeah. How can we do that? How can we, because you want people to invest in something that is longer term, that's farther away, that has more risk in their perception, probably. Yes. So I'm not an expert. So you have to on, on uh, the point of investment. So what I do, I try to work with investors, first of all, to look at their portfolio and say, okay, your current investments, do they contribute to system change or system optimization? Okay. And what would be new opportunities? And to get to these new opportunities, uh, what we do, we look at future desirable worlds 
So together with them and other stakeholders, we try to say, okay, the world in 2050, in terms of systems, need to look like this. And then we go back to the current time and then we try to find out what type of developments or pathways will lead towards. And then we try to locate their portfolio in this. Because what they do now, they assess a company, an individual company for its impact. If you are lucky, because not, they can also just look at return on investment, but for their impact. But we think you need to look at all their investments together because it's never that one investment or two investments will generate system change. You need a whole series of investments that need to be coordinated and you don't need to start with assessing the companies you start with the impact and then you from the impact you get finally to a point that you know where to invest so we are setting up a deep transition lab at the university of utrecht to work with investors and we call that experiments investment experiments to try out these methods for how to invest in 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 system mm. change it's like when you're an entrepreneur you have a vision you want to create something and what you say is if you want to invest and you want you want to create the future then you also have to have a vision of what will the future be yes all right it's time for the questions friedemann what tickles your curiosity Yes, so the, the systems change, I think, is is very important kind of point to, that we move towards on the on the horizon. But this is very difficult kind of to quantify for investors, right? So if you look at how financial markets work, basically, something that you cannot quantify in one way or the other does not exist, right? So there's a few exceptions. I'm exaggerating here, but how how do we how do we quantify system change so that they basically can justify? what they will be doing, like yeah. restructuring their portfolios. Yeah, this is a big problem. So because what you're alluding to is that the current structures do not allow to do this. Of course, there are exceptions like family offices. So the and philanthropy, which is not investment, but still very important. Uh, so one of the things we argue for is collective action. So certain type of things can be done by impact investors or philanthropy or even the public sector, while other things can be done by the institutional investors. At the moment, that's not coordinated. So we try to look at the capital chain and who can do what. But even then, I think it's important for institutional investors. They can also, uh, let's say, allocate even 5% of their assets to what you may call concessionary or experimental capital. Because we have introduced the notion that uh, you can do a certain investment to make an other investment uh, thrive. Because these investments depend on each other. And these dependencies uh, currently are not taken into account. Uh, you ask about measurement. Well, I think we need to move, like you said in the beginning, a lot more to direct investment, in fact. And in this direct investment, I think qualitative measurement can also play a role and I think that is allowed in fact because I, I know a number of these investors who do that uh, they even use stories to justify their investments wow interesting yeah it's funny to see if if we're talking about investments and every, everything has to be quantified and if you look at the rest of life and things that individuals are are doing that well I mean in choosing your partner, there's not so much quantified, I think. And it's kind of a big decision in your life. Uh, but that's, uh, that's a totally different subject. Diana, what's your question to Johan? Well, you mentioned uh, that investments should go to desirable futures. So I was wondering who should define what a desirable future is. And when you look at the major investments uh, globally, they are mostly in the most developed markets. So what happens with the emerging markets? What is the role of the Global South in all of this picture? Yes, this is uh, an important uh, issue, uh, also in an instrumental way, because of what is called the rebound effect. Suppose you save a lot of energy, so you do an investment in energy saving, but then people will use the money because they get more money because they saved energy for traveling by airplane. So, okay, you have some 
positive benefit, but there's a rebound effect. And it's the same with the whole issue of the social issues that the system transition can only work if the just or the fairness of uh, the development is taken into account. Otherwise, first of all, we will not solve the problem. Secondly, we may get into uh, social unrest, a lot of social problems. So this transition needs to be just to be a system change. And of course, the question then is how do you measure what is just? And here, I think the current democratic system is not sufficient. If you think about representative democracy, like a voting system, I think my take would be that people who are impacted by certain investments should have a say. And Roberta mentioned in an introduction these new investment principles, transformative investment principles. Um, you can find them on the website www.transformativeinvestment.net. But one of them is give voice. And that's very important. And at the moment, investors don't do that enough. So if they invest in certain companies, they should think about the impact of these companies and who is impacted. And these people should have a voice. So if you invest in South Africa, in a wind park, there's local people. These local people, you could also give them shares so that they become co-owner. But at least they should have a voice. So if they invest in these companies, so they should make sure these companies do that. Wow. Great take. Uh, a lot of work to do if I'm listening to, uh, to all your opinions uh, and your wisdom, of course. Time for our final scientists to give her view on this question. Diana Velasco. Diana, it's your turn. Well, Roberta asked about the role of private investment in long-term system change, but obviously private investment needs public investment and therefore policy, and that's how transformative innovation policy emerges in response to the innovation policy-making frames limitation to approach the complex social and environmental challenges we have been discussing so far. Once the Millennium Goals and after those, the Sustainable Development Goals highlighted the need to set a global agenda in which innovation and policy are central, it was clear that innovation policy required to achieve from short-term market failure fixing, very focused on economic growth and using the nature as an asset to a long-term sustainability transition on something in the line that Johan was explaining before. It seems, however, paradigmatic that even though the state, uh, from its conceptions, represent a long-term view that should, get, should guarantee present uh, social welfare and preservation of conditions for future generations, it plays with government cycles and structures that function better for the short term. And here we find some of the shortcomings, building the capacities and capabilities in the government agencies or ministries to create different policy instruments, navigate the rigid uh, internal procedures and traditional management styles, which are not agile and open to uncertainty and getting resources allocated beyond the government cycles in the best cases and in the year, in the worst cases, and that happens a lot in the global south, has proven to be extremely difficult. With no exception, in countries that we have worked with uh, from the Global North and Global South in the Transformative Innovation Policy Consortium, we could see policy entrepreneurs navigating complexity and overcoming obstacles to create convergent mechanisms toward long-term system change. However, there are still very dominant practices within their ministries that prevent them to work actually in an agile way, way uh, with the private uh, investors. So in that endeavor, like we see a possibility from the policy side, from the public uh, side, to create experimentation, different ways of approaching different instruments to work with the uh, private capitals. And not only with the private uh, investors, also with uh, grassroots innovations, because what Johan was saying, one of the principles is like, those who are accepted that are affected for all of these investment and changes should have uh, a voice. 
and that requires to go beyond technological uh, fixes, basically. So there's already schemes working out there in the public sector to work that are working in public-private uh, partnerships in an kind of innovative way, experimenting with that. That is one case uh, with the Catalonian government that is working in bioeconomy or health shared agendas where there's kind of a public procurement paired with local companies to create and to look towards systems transformation for the long term. But those are still early uh, kind of initiatives. All right. Thanks, Diana. Um, Johan, your question, your curious question for Diana. Yeah, my question is because we often uh, rely on the nation state. So a lot of this innovation policy is organized by the national state. While, as we know, the states have kind of difficulty to operate in the long term. And they also squeezed, you know, because there's international action and there's, and there's local action. So should we put a lot more emphasis on local action and in fact try to connect localities instead of relying on uh, national policy? That's one of the principles, uh, inclusivity. The policy and governments should be enablers of local action. Actually, that is one of the aims of transformative innovation to work with local people, with social innovation, to give boy, voice, to shield kind of these alternative practices that are coming from society that don't have to be invented through the state. They are already happening. So the role of the policy of the government is to kind of facilitate that process for those initiatives to emerge and to find also and help find other type of investments and private investments out as well to create plat platforms to do that. Only facilitate, because that sounds a bit empty to me, because in a way, a lot of the, although these local initiatives try out things, they often not transformative enough. So can we perhaps assume that the role of the state is to make them more radical? Yeah, the role of the state is to see, like go beyond the specific initiatives to look at the long term, that's the state role, to look at the systems change, transformation, and try to connect different networks of people's initiatives, trying to uh, kind of uh, give the means for people to learn, to give the means for the initiatives to scale up, to be a connector, if you want to see it that way. The strange thing is, Diana, I'm thinking about the European Union, because there are some very impactful legislation is made, very far away from, from normal civilians, within Europe, which have an enormous impact. But I think maybe because it's so far, far away for the, the average civilian, they have the opportunity to create these legislations with, uh, like CO2 pricing or uh, even equal pay within companies. There's no discussion. There's nothing in the media. Uh, so it's also maybe, uh, could it help to have even more distance instead of uh, being inclusive and very nearby. There's a difference between participation of global society and empowerment of, uh, uh, of, of, of the different groups. So I would say that social movements have an important role in society to call out their governments, and in this case, the European uh, Commission and the European space, to do more, to fight for more rights. And then the policymakers have the duty of not only like creating these uh, amazing uh, instruments and missions like in experts groups and then kind of do socialization of what they already invented and then put it in into action it's doing it with the people listening to voices and obviously that is uh, very difficult and challenging that's what most of the policymakers don't do it <laughs> no it's a disruption of their process most of the time Friedemann, what's your question and the final question that you will ask? I was actually <clears throat> triggered by uh, the, the sentence that you said about co-investing, right? With the public and private in investors. So you want to basically what we call crowd them in 
uh, into this space. And, and that is, I think, a, a nice way of experimenting and exploring what is possible, what is not, and also that they can learn, right? Especially private investors from what is going on, how, how do things work? But how do you think this should be structured, right? So, I mean, there, there's this public opinion that, okay, so whenever we experiment, basically something goes wrong, um, the state takes all the risks uh, and all the losses, and if something goes well, the private investors basically reap the benefits, right? So, and, and that does, August, an economist, uh, someone, someone that cares about sustainability strikes me as not very sustainability-oriented, equity-oriented. So how do you envision this? kind of collaboration or this, this co-investing between public and private institutions? Well, in that area, I think that there's much more to do right now. I gave uh, before the example of uh, Catalonia, but basically one way of going through those processes is kind of to uh, create spaces like transition arenas, for example, or the Transformative Innovation Policy Consortium or the Deep Transitions Lab, where you can have actors from the private public sector together to learn because we don't really know how to do it. As the policymakers, there's also an issue of responsibility and how much if you work with a private investor, you could be giving some uh, kind of, uh, there are interests there that they can be called out because they could pri like privilege some of the, some of the private investors. So, There's no a recipe for doing that, but we can create, and that's what we're doing with this type of platforms, ways of coming together and creating ways of making it happen. All right. Thank you, Diana. All right, Roberta, you've been listening to uh, all the contributions of these uh, very, very special scientists about private investors and how they can contribute to uh, systems change, sustainable ch systems change, of course. What did you learn? What, what stood out for you? Yeah, I think it was a really interesting discussion and I think it's always valuable when you mix uh, perspective from different disciplines. Uh, so that's, that's very good. I want to pull out three concepts that stood out for me. The first one is this notion of starting from thinking of a system. This is something that investors are not used to doing. Thinking of a system as a way to provide services. So starting from the need, from the benefit that you want to get out of investing into something or doing a certain activity. Yeah, uh, like, uh, like Johan told about uh, mobility, you want from A to B. Exactly. You don't want to take the car, you just want from A to B. Exactly, the need is the mobility service is not owning the car per se. Uh, so that already leads to a shift in perspective. And to this, I think the concept of system optimization as opposed to system transformation is actually really a useful concept and it's quite intuitive. So it would be a starting point uh, for investors to start internalizing this distinction and uh, really make it uh, their own and, uh, and, and embed it into investment practices. Uh, because at least one needs to know what um, a certain investment is contributing to, whether it's accelerating or uh, a system change, a deep transition, or whether it's optimizing an existing unsustainable system, even though making it slightly better in the short term. Of course, it remains uh, the question of measurements of that. And that remains a barrier, uh, but I think there's definitely work that, that can be done then and that is being done on that. The concept of having qualitative measurement and storytelling is definitely important. Obviously, one needs to avoid that that leads to greenwashing. So there needs to be some hard <laughs> measurement in there too, but I think the two need to be integrated. So that was, uh, that was really interesting for me. The second point is around the role of regulation. I do think regulation is an important driver of change. And I do think it's been positive in the past, uh, both with, um, in the recent past, both with more targets and more disclosure requirements for investors. So that's uh, definitely good. I think also uh, around fiduciary duty, which is obviously related, uh, linked to regulation, there is some work that has been done as well, um, as supported by uh, the Generation Foundation, Fresh Fields and, and the PRI uh, around the legal framework for impact that's been analyzing Uh, what actually fiduciary duty requires um, asset owner in 11 different countries. And in fact, it has found that legally they are allowed to incorporate a lot of uh, sustainability indicators mm. in there. So that's, that's quite interesting. Um, And it would, be f it would be great if the, if, 
if especially this part would be turned around. So if you take into account uh, future maybe disasters that might happen, your it it is your duty to act upon that instead of well you're doing sustainable stuff so that's really not optimizing wealth in the short term. Indeed, I think this links really to the concept of risk, which is very often a key driver of investment. Risk historically has been seen as uh, distancing yourself from a benchmark. That by definition means how far are you from the status quo? But actually risk could be seen differently. It could be seen as real exposure to megatrends and to shocks, which could be modeled in a way that takes into account all of these interrelated system challenges. And that would be such a more powerful and frankly, more truthful indicator of risk. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's something that, that should be explored further. Third, I, I think it's also interesting to think about collaboration with policymakers um, and also with public innovation agencies. This is, again, something that doesn't really happen a lot in the investment world, at least in my experience. Um, but I think it, it holds incredible potential. And so that, that uh, collaboration, that uh, idea of co-investing, crowding in private and public capital together, uh, that's quite interesting. And I like the notion or the idea of policy entrepreneurs. I think maybe we need to find some of them and uh, uh, and start making direct links and, uh, and tighter collaborations. That could be powerful. Wow, yeah, cool. What would you like to have researched more? What do you think is a, is a field of expertise that you are, or, or a question that you are like, well, we have to know more about that because if we would know that, then it would really help uh, a sustainable systems change. Okay, that's that's a really difficult question. Um, but maybe one thing that comes to mind is what is a desirable future? Um, this is a discussion that uh, actually Jan and I sometimes have. Um, you cannot know what's a, what's a, what's the future and, and uh, in a sense the future is plural, he says. And that's true, but, but maybe there could be ways to define what is a desirable future and some parameters around that. For example, um, com the work that comes to mind is the Earth for All work that's been led by the Club of Rome, where they've been doing some long-term modeling about the minimum level of transformational shifts that are required to ensure sustainability for all in the planet in terms of uh, you know, climate change, biodiversity loss, social tensions. And, um, and that already leads to some minimum definition of, of what's a sustainable future. And, and There are some insightful um, and, and, and maybe surprising um, findings in there. Some are not surprising at all, like we need to decarbonize the economy, we need to leave space mm. to nature, etc. Uh, but others uh, are a bit more surprising, like uh, you know, we need to drastically reduce the level of inequality in a way that, uh, that perhaps we haven't really quantified in our minds. Wow. We need to dream also a bit more about <laughs> what could be. For sure. All right. Thank you. Uh, thanks a lot, uh, Roberto Benedetti Del Rio. And thanks, of course, to our scientists, Johan Schott and Friedemann Polzin of U Utrecht University and Diana Velasco of Ingenio. And thank you, of course, for listening to this Long-Termism podcast. There's more to come, so please subscribe via your favorite podcast platform. 